кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. More than 20 months after Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, the dominant conventional wisdom is that Vladimir Putin's autocratic and imperial regime has been isolated and ostracized. Moscow's relations with the West have been all but severed. Putin's travel is severely limited due to war crimes indictments, and the Russian economy is cut off from global financial markets due to sanctions. But the Kremlin leader has several trump cards up his sleeve that he's been playing to keep global influence with some measure of success. He's doubled down on the Sino-Russian partnership to keep the economy afloat. He's relied on rogue states like North Korea and Iran to provide weapons, and he's explicitly appealed to the global South by cynically casting his brutal invasion of Ukraine as an anti-colonial struggle against the West. Today, we'll look at the geopolitical hand that Putin is trying to play and how the West can counter it. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic House's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So, Jeff, I know you've been doing a lot of research in these areas, particularly into Putin's views of world order and the Russian foreign policy elite's views on world order. So I wanted to take each of these cards that Putin is playing in turn to see if they do indeed add up to some kind of coherent strategy. So let's start with the deepening Sino-Russian part. Putin was in Beijing last week for the Belt and Road Summit. Xi Jinping was in Moscow back in May. And the thing I noticed about these meetings was that they were both big on optics and small on de deliverables. How do you see the Sino-Russian relationship and where can we expect it to go? Yeah, thanks. I think that characterization is is pretty accurate. Um, you know, the the thing that a lot of observers were watching uh, when, when Putin traveled to the Belt and Road Summit was whether there would be an announcement about the so-called Power of Siberia 2 pipeline. Uh, there wasn't despite uh, hints and indications uh, in the Russian press that something would be forthcoming. Um, and, you know, if you look more broadly at the Belt and Road, um, most of the projects where China is investing uh, aren't in Russia. The infrastructure, the connectivity that uh, characterizes the Belt and Road mostly goes around Russia. So I think um, in, in substantive terms, uh, this is a little bit of uh, a distraction. Now, that said, I think the Sino-Russian partnership is quite important, and I think that the war in Ukraine has uh, both deepened it and transformed it. It's important because China and Russia have converging, if not maybe identical, uh, views of the problems with the current world order and ideas about how to change it. Um, they want what the Russians especially describe as a more quote-unquote democratic world order, which is to say one in which not only the Western state's voice is not as prominent as it is now, but in which 
principles designed by and upheld by the West don't have the same purchase uh, as part of the operating system of that order as they do right now. So this is sometimes described as, you know, a world safe for uh, autocracy, as the the Cornell scholar Jessica Chen Weiss put it, whereas I've sometimes described it a world safe for empire. Um, beyond that, um, I think the emphasis on the global south and on uh, raising the voices of, of actors in the global south when it comes to questions of global order and global institutions um, is part of this too. Now, for China, this has been a longstanding priority. China's aligned itself with the global south, the developing world, you know, even going back to uh, the Cold War, where it tried to position itself as a third pillar between Washington and Moscow. But for Russia, this is a bit of a shift, and it's one that I think we've seen uh, become more prominent in the last decade, I'd say really since the, the military intervention in Syria, um, where Russia tried to, uh, you know, sort of pivot away from its focus on just uh, dominating its local region and take on more of a global role. And that sort of drew it into some of these conversations about, you know, how do you balance between different actors in the Middle East? How do you position yourself uh, to to gain the support of, of post-colonial states in, in not just the Middle East, but in Africa, Latin America, um, and elsewhere? And as the crisis, the, the tension, the rift really between Russia and the West has deepened, I think that uh, element of prioritization in Russian foreign policy has has grown. Um, there's more, uh, you know, sort of emphasis on on the global South and individual countries within the global South as actors uh, whose worldviews also uh, kind of line up around this idea of a less Western-centric world. So even if you know you, you're talking about a, a post-colonial country that you would think of uh, as being opposed to the Russian um, colonial war in Ukraine, um, a country like say you know, Brazil, for instance, um, there's uh, some overlap in terms of how the Brazilian elite thinks about how the global order needs to change with how the Russian elite thinks about how the global order may change. And for Brazil, you know, Ukraine is a long way away. Uh, and so in some ways, it's a it's a bit of an abstraction. So I think this is an area where Russia's really been doubling down, and it lines up with, with China's worldview as well. Beyond that, oh, as that I said... I was going to say, and there's another piece of it too, which is that I think for Russia or for Putin all along, um, you know, national security is really about regime security. And China has been uh, an important prop for uh, efforts to shore up the security of the Russian regime. Uh, this is part of, of uh, what Jessica Chenweis talks about as a world made safe for autocracy, uh, one in which, um, you know, democratic norms and, and institutions don't have kind of pride of place, but also where autocracies work together and share worst practices uh, around how to, to prop up those systems. And I think we've really seen a, a kind of doubling down of, of um, Russian uh, uh, use of, of Chinese technology um, to sort of shore up uh, its, its autocratic uh, political model. Uh, using Chinese investment and trade to replace the investment and trade that it's lost uh, as a result of Western sanctions and, and this broader fissure. Um, but the consequence of all of that is that Russia has increasingly sort of mortgaged its future to China uh, because China is a much bigger, more dynamic, uh, wealthier uh, economy, more technologically advanced economy. And so Russia risks now 
finding itself pulled more and more into a world where it's dominated by Chinese tech, where it adopts Chinese technical standards, where it depends on Chinese financing, where it has to accept a kind of subordinate position in, in terms of following China's lead on, on issues of global diplomatic import, um, but where uh, it doesn't feel that the regime is under threat and where it can, um, you know, kind of focus on propping itself up at a time of increasing hostility with the West. Yeah, it's it's some another thing jumped out at me in both of these meetings, but particularly the one in Moscow in May was the body language. I mean, you had Xi sitting there like he was Tony Soprano and Putin looked like some kind of underling, right? I mean, it, 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 the, it's the meeting in Moscow was, was clearly like that. And mm. Russia is clearly becoming a junior partner here. One has to wonder if Russia's going to be comfortable being anybody's junior partner for long. The, the other thing that jumps out at me is these uh, these almost obligatory calls for a multipolar world order. Um, I don't know what that exactly means yet. What are the poles? Where does Russia fit in on this poll? Are they the junior partner in some Chinese poll? Are Europe and the U.S. separate poles? Because I don't think that's going to happen. Um, there's mm -hmm. a, And the other thing that, that I would add is that it seems to me that China is more comfortable with the current world order than Russia is. China wants to tweak it. The current world order has been very good to China. Um, and, and so I'm wondering how much convergence actually exists there. Any, any thoughts yeah. on, on all those things? Um, yeah. So I think the disbalance between China and Russia is growing. And I think the Russian elite made a strategic choice um, in 2014 and then even more uh, since February 20. Fourth, 2022, that accepting this kind of junior partner role to China was uh, a necessity given uh, the consequences of uh, engaging in a long-running strategic competition with the West. Um, I had a Russian analyst describe it to me after 2014 as being a sense in which the West was the immediate threat, um, and it was an existential threat because they saw the West kind of promotion of democracy and um, you know, the idea of a, of a more democratic uh, prioritization of democracy as fundamentally threatening to the uh, existence of the Putin regime, whereas they saw China uh, as being a long-term threat or even maybe not a threat, but a long-term challenge uh, and one that could be managed using, you know, the techniques that in the Chinese context might be called barbarian management. Um, but because China was okay uh, and actually supported the continuation of the current regime um, and because it was willing to kind of defer to, you know, Russian uh, amour propre uh, in certain ways, like we saw at the at the Belt and Road Forum where, you know, Putin was given pride of place in the in the photo standing next to Xi Jinping, um, that that kind of, uh, you know, sort of symbolic uh, support for Russia goes a long way, uh, even if it means that on some of these substantive issues, Russia has to take a secondary position. Um, on this question of whether the Chinese and Russian worldviews overlap, um, I think in some areas, let's just cut that out. Um, I, I think in some areas uh, they do, um, but you're right that China is less of an out-and-out -out revisionist power vis-a-vis uh, -vis the world or the existing world order than Russia is. Um, I'm certainly not a China specialist, but I do think that under Xi Jinping, we've seen China move in a more uh, overtly revisionist direction. But, you know, you're right. China benefits from uh, globalization. It benefits from 
uh, you know, the existence of something like the World Trade Organization, uh, even if the U.S. has had some regrets about its its role in allowing China into the WTO. Um, so I'm not sure that China wants to completely overturn the table, um, but they definitely want uh, a larger voice for themselves and, and for other non-Western countries, um, which I think is something that Russia favors too. There's one other thing here, and that's, you know, Putin um, recently had his annual meeting of the Valdai Discussion Club, where he, you know, tends to give a, a long kind of conceptual speech about, you know, how Russia sees itself. And a lot of what he focused on this year um, was the idea of civilization um, and Russia as a distinct civilization, a civilizational state with its own kind of norms and rules and traditions um, that wasn't uh didn't have to adopt western ways you know democracy okay that's a western idea that may not be relevant to the russian context uh the institutions that the west is pushing those may be fine for the west but they're part of western civilization and because russia is not part of western civilization in this conception um it doesn't have to join those institutions or follow those norms and i think that that's a, a worldview that's quite congenial to china uh i think the current leadership uh, in Beijing very much thinks of China as well as being a, a civilizational state that's not necessarily confined to, you know, the borders of the PRC. Uh, you might call it a, an empire. Um, you, know, you mentioned my, my book about imperial legacies. This is one of the topics that I mm -hmm. kind of explore. Um, and so I think in that sense, you know, the idea of these big countries as civilizations unto themselves, not necessarily constrained by their borders with some you know, kind of right of domination over their smaller neighbors uh, as kind of pillars of a, a global system that's based not on democratic ideals, but on the interaction of these kind of civilizations. I think there's a lot of overlap between Moscow and Beijing there. Mm. Interesting. I, I want to shift also, but this is related because you were kind of unpacking everything, talking about the global south in relation to the Sino-Russian partnership. And I want to kind of shift into these these other areas. And the first one that also is catching my eye right now and i'm sure is catching yours and others um i don't want to revive the axis of evil uh, uh, rhetoric but the the, the axis of rose russia iran north korea i mean russia's gotten closer and lavrov was just in iran this week mm -hmm. right um uh iran is pro providing russia with weapons providing russia with drones north korea is providing uh, mm -hmm. them with 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 ammunition is this just a tactical uh, bit for the war, or do you see this as part of this broader strategy that you seem to be laying out um, with, with the, that relates to the Sino-Russian relationship? I would say it's probably somewhere in between. Uh, I think it's driven by uh, tactical needs related to the war, um, but it does have larger implications. Um, and, you know, we're seeing this now with the outbreak of conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas, mm -hmm. because Russia had long... You know, tried to walk a fine line on this conflict um, and still is. Um, but it's been pretty clear with the statements that Russian diplomats have made since the uh, Hamas massacres in, in early October that they're um, taking a much more sympathetic position towards Hamas than uh, the Western powers are. Um, and the Israelis have been very you know, openly critical of Russia uh, in a way that we, we haven't been used to seeing uh, before October 7th. Um, and I think that that largely, but not entirely, is a product of Russia's alienation from the West since the start of the war in Ukraine and the growing alignment between Russia and Iran. 
because for Iran, this is this conflict in the Middle East is um, front and center. Uh, I think this is where Iran is focused, um, and much of the quest and cut. Let me is that sentence over? So, you know, I, I was in the Middle East a couple months ago, and you know, talking to people about Russia and kind of Russia's role in the Middle East. And the question everybody had was, well, okay, so Iran is supporting the Russian war effort in Ukraine. It's providing drones um, and maybe providing, you know, other kinds of things, right? There were some Iranian engineers who were killed in a strike in Crimea. Uh, so there were, you know, Iranians on the ground uh, helping, you know, Russia implement and, and, and develop this drone technology. The question that people in the Middle East had was, well, okay, what does Iran get in exchange? And it was unclear... Well, at the time, exactly what that might be. People, you know, were speculating about a lot of things, but I think this is the the Russian response to the Hamas incursions into into Israel is sort of an indication of how that quid pro quo seems to be working. I don't think that the Russians make that shift, uh, you know, absent this closer alignment with Iran that's been produced as a result of the war in Ukraine. And I think that has much bigger implications because it makes it more difficult to settle the conflict. It, it you know, risks having uh, any escalation in the Middle East then kind of spill over into into the broader world and potentially affect Ukraine. Uh, so I think in that sense, it does have these bigger strategic implications. Yeah, and and um, the North Korea piece, how do you see that? I mean, I see that largely as tactical, but do you see it, uh, they are aligned with China? Do you mm -hmm. see any kind of strategic uh, uh, efforts here? Yeah, I think this one... You know, maybe less so than the Iranian one, because, you know, I, I think Russia's already had a Russia's long had pretty decent working relations with North Korea. Um, and when the U.S.-Russia relationship was better, the U.S. tried to get Russia to use its leverage over North Korea to uh, to tamp down uh, the, the North Korean nuclear program without any sort of real success. Um, but, you know, now I think you know, kind of similarly to the question with Iran, well, okay, what is Russia giving back in exchange for the, for this help? You know, you can ask the same question about North Korea. Uh, what is North Korea getting, mm -hmm. you know, ammunition to Russia? Some of it I'm sure is, you know, financial. Uh, the Russians are paying for this presumably and North Korea needs all the money it can get. But, you know, is there anything in the strategic realm? Are the Russians going to help the North Koreans with their rocket program? Um, are mm -hmm. they going at least tacitly uh, assist North Korea with its nuclear weapons, or at least look away from uh, what North Korea is doing to, to develop its nuclear weapons. I think these are all, you know, things that have to be very much uh, considered and, and that we should be paying attention to. You know, I, I think, uh, again, the Russians have prioritized the war in Ukraine, which they see as part of this broader conflict with the West over everything else. And I think if that means that you know, they may have to accept a, a, a more robustly armed North Korea or more regionally aggressive uh, Iran in ways that cause complications for the West. I think that's a price they're prepared to pay. Yeah, the trade-offs here are interesting because Putin's put a lot of time, effort, um, and capital into cultivating Israel. Um, it's particularly cultivating the Nyak more than more, more than Israel writ large. Um, and there was a time when Russia was 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 courting Japan. Now mm -hmm. these moves here, this tight embrace of Iran and this tight embrace of North Korea, 
does mark a shift. I mean, I always said the thing about the 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 uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is it ripped the masks off. We all had to stop pretending. So we stopped pretending that 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 Russia's a uh, you know potentially a partner for the West. We stopped pretending that they're playing they're they're, they're that they're you know truly courting Israel or Japan or so on. They've moved to one side of this entirely. Do you think that this is irreversible, or are they is this is the, have they made basically a a long term geopolitical choice here? Or are we moving into something much different than what we've been experiencing for the last thirty years or so? Yeah, I, I, I'm worried that we are moving into something that's going to be hard to to reverse. You know, I, I think the I, I think of the Israeli-Russian relationship, it, it, it's complicated because I think you know even up until really up until October seventh, um, the Israeli side was still you know trying to walk that tightrope. You know, public opinion in Israel was pretty strongly pro-Ukrainian. Uh, the U.S. has been putting pressure on Israel to send uh, weapons of various kinds to Ukraine, um, and Israel has refused for the most. They've sent, you know, humanitarian assistance, um, but they haven't sent weapons. And a big part of that was because um, Netanyahu was trying to, you know, keep uh, the Russian option open. Um, and certainly during Netanyahu's last tenure as prime minister. Um, there was, you know, a, a fair bit of, of coordination between, or at least cooperation between Israel and, and Russia. And despite everything, um, you know, Israel has been carrying out attacks in Syria against uh, Iranian and Hezbollah uh, targets. Those attacks have to be coordinated with the Russians to make sure that Israel doesn't hit Russian assets. Uh, so there's a deconfliction mechanism that's in place there, and that has largely continued to work. And the Israelis were worried about, uh, you know, if they went in full war in support of Ukraine, um, that was going to go away, that the Russians would make it harder for them to carry out those operations in Syria, um, that they would transfer additional weapons to Iran, uh, and that they would retaliate in other ways. Um, you know, so now this is a, a, Israel's in a very difficult position for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think that this is is one of them, because now they're, you know, m much more, um they, I think they have to make a more fundamental decision about how they're going to try and and balance between you know the West and its support for Ukraine and, and trying to maintain some kind of line of communication with Russia at a time where Russia has shown that it's um, you know going to be more actively on the side of, of Israel's enemies. But you know for this question about whether we're seeing a you know a fundamental shift that's going to be hard to to reverse, I think the jury's out. But I'm worried that you're right and and that we are. Um, especially because I don't see the war in Ukraine ending soon. Um, I think Russia is going to continue to try and tap in to um, support uh, military and, and otherwise wherever it can get it. And that largely means, you know, this axis of rogues or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there is going to be more uh, tactical cooperation between Russia and Iran, Russia and North Korea, Russia and China. Uh, but that tactical cooperation has strategic impacts. And the longer the war in Ukraine goes on, I think the the deeper the the fissure between Russia mm -hmm. and the more Russia becomes dependent on this the rest of this axis of rogues. Yeah, we're we we're, we're, we seem to be moving into a world of blocks again, um, is 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 what it looks like to me. Now the final piece to this is the global south. Or not the final piece, but an important piece to this is the global south. You alluded to this. 
earlier and it's it, it's this is a part of this um the 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 world over the last 600 days or 20 months or so that has kind of struck me. I, it, it's, it should be predictable, but it's still striking. Um, the degree to which the West views Ukraine completely differently than, than somebody in India or Brazil or South Africa. Um, I've heard it put that the anti-Americanism is so strong that it kind of metamorphizes into, into, into pro-Russianism and pro-Chineseism. What do you see going on? I know you're doing some work on the global south. Now, what do you see truly going on in, in, in the global south? Is this the conflict they just don't care about and can't be bothered? Or are they, are they actively moving toward a pro-Russian? I know in the global south is not monolithic by any stretch of the imagination. I so To clarify, I'm not doing work on the global oh. south. I'm doing work on about six million other things, but, but not that. Um, you know, so th this is kind of, my view as a, you know, uh, informed generalist, maybe, but um, I think you're right that there's a lot of variation depending where you go uh, in the global south. Um, but you know, th th there's a tension here because a lot of the global south, the countries that exist there now, are the product of decolonization. Um, you know, whether that's India or uh, Nigeria, Brazil. Uh, you know, take your pick. And I think that colonization and the experience of, of independence through decolonization um, was really formative for the political cultures in a lot of these countries. But that cuts both ways. Because on the one hand, I think you can say, well, the war in Ukraine is a colonial war the same way that, you know, you experienced in your history. On the other hand, the protagonists uh, are different. And so, you know, if the, the anti-colonial narrative in, uh, a lot of Africa say focuses on Britain, or France, or Portugal, or, you know, whichever the, the local imperial power was, but the Western Europeans, right. Uh, I think they'd become more inclined to see Russia as on the side of the national liberation Soviet union, you know, largely was, um, and there's, you know, okay, yes, the Russian Federation is very different from the Soviet Union, especially in terms of its engagement with Global South. But I think, you know, at the at the public level, you can kind of see those those through lines. So the, the, this issue kind of cuts both ways. And I would also say that I think the Russians have been kind of proactive in trying to shape narratives in a lot of these places. We've especially seen this in Africa. Um, but, you know, we're in, in other parts of the Global South, too. I have a, a former colleague, uh, Doug Farah, who has a report out recently about Russian influence in Latin America and talking about how, you know, Russia's trying to um, get nodes of influence uh, in the information space and business and, and politics, you know, across Latin America. Um, and it's already done this in a, in a pretty comprehensive way in a lot of Africa. And I think a lot of the turmoil, like in West Africa right now, especially is not necessarily caused by, but is, you know, congruent by yeah, by, by Russian activities. Um, they, they, they've set the groundwork here. Um, whereas I think, you know, in the West, we've been a little bit uh, inclined to take some of this for granted, some of these these countries for granted. Yeah. And I, another thing I see going on, Jeff, and I'm not sure if you see this too, is it's a lot of pragmatism in the global South on this. Mm -hmm. I was speaking to a, a, an Indian official, a friend of mine about this. And he said, look, the way, the way this is viewed in India, this is the 
a, a fight in the Western world that has nothing to do with us. We don't have a dog in this fight. We're going to continue buying energy from Russia because you told us we couldn't buy it from Iran. You told us we couldn't buy it from Venezuela. We got to buy it from somebody. We're going to continue buying arms from Russia because you mm-hmm. sell arms to Pakistan and we're therefore not going to buy arms from you. So this is all, it, it's nothing personal, just business, right? Yeah. Um, you see that, do, do you see that as, because that's easier to overcome than if this is a matter of conviction. Well, I, I think it's both. Um, probably for governments, it's more what you're describing. Um, I think at the public level, um, and you know, even in autocratic states, governments have to have some responsiveness to public concerns that it's this anti-colonial, uh, narrative is important. Um, but yeah, I, I think for the, for the governments, uh, you know, especially in a democratic state like India, you know, that, yeah, this is they don't see Ukraine as being their fight. Um, they're worried about energy prices. They're worried about food prices. They're worried about, you know, the potential for a larger war. Um, but, you know, they don't see this as, as being their fight necessarily. Um, and, you know, where this gets interesting now is, again, to kind of come back to the Middle East, because of how the the war in Ukraine is now coming to overlap with the war between Israel and Hamas. Um, because in a lot of the global South, the Israel war, the Israel Hamas war is more present. And I mean, certainly in the Muslim world, but even, you know, sort of outside of it. And I think what you're starting to see is, uh, you know, accusations of, of Western hypocrisy, um, on this issue that, you know, you talk a good game about decolonization when it comes to support for Ukraine. Uh, but you're not saying the same thing when it comes to Israel and Hamas or Israel and the Palestinians. Um, so, okay, you know, why should we, um, believe you or support you when you say, you know, national liberation, uh, anti-imperialism, whatever it is, vis-a-vis Ukraine, when, you know, we see you doing something that we interpret as being the complete opposite of that in Palestine. Right. Now, I want to kind of pull this all full circle now, as we wrap up the first half of the show, um, does this all add up to a strategy on Russia's part? Or is this just a hodgepodge of, of, of you know, of, of putting out fires here and there and taking what you need here and there? Or does is there is there some kind of coherent strategy at play here? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, and it's one that I grapple with a lot because um, I'm not sure that I know the answer to it. Uh, I don't think that, as as we've discussed on this podcast and you know over drinks, Russia clearly didn't expect this war in Ukraine. It expected a different war, a much shorter war. Um, so everything that's happened since February 24th, 2022, in some ways is a response to the failure of Russian strategy uh, to win a quick victory over Ukraine. Um, now, that said, I think you can see the contours of something like a strategic approach emerging uh, since the onset of that war. Um, which is to, um, you know, sever the links tying Russia to the West, uh, you know, build up Russian capabilities as a military actor, um, build up relationships with non-Western states to replace or at least uh, compensate for what Russia has lost through the severing of its economic and political relationships with the West and to push for this kind of larger global transformation that would empower non-Western 
voices. I think you saw elements of this approach already before February 24th, but I think that it's becoming more it's taking on a, a kind of more coherent sheen uh, over the past year and a half. And with in terms of cutting off ties with the West, what you see is, and this is nothing new, but a continuation of the old strategy of appealing to those we would consider problematic actors in the West. Of course, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Pizzo in, in Slovakia. That, that seems to now be taking kind of a backseat to the other strategic efforts with regard to China, uh, Iran, North Korea, the global South, the, the 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 efforts to split Europe. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm getting ahead of my skis here. But it seems to me that that's still going on. Yeah. But it's not. That used to be kind of job one, and mm-hmm. now it looks like more like job three or four. Would you agree? Yeah. You know, I that's I, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think you're right. Um, you know, some of the disruptive stuff, support for anti-establishment groups in Europe is, is still there. Um, but you know, I, I, I think that the West Europe, the United States has become more adept at responding, um, and is more, um, prepared to push back that they were say in 2016. Uh, you know, I think you still see some of these tools and techniques being deployed in vulnerable states. You know, we, we talked on the podcast before about Georgia, um, mm. places like that, as well as in, you know, the global South. But in terms of a strategy for dealing with the West, yeah, it does seem to have become a little less prominent. Now, that said, uh, you know, all the conversation in Washington over the last couple of weeks has centered on the the drama on Capitol Hill. Um, and what that means for continued support for uh, Ukraine. And even if the Russians aren't driving or even deeply involved in that debate and the kind of long-term implications that it has, I mean, you can certainly see where their sympathies lie. Um, And we do have questions about what's going to happen domestically in the United States over the next year and a half. You know, Germany's got an election coming up. France has one a little later. And, you know, the potential for you know, say, let's call them pro-Russian forces to uh, to do well in, in any of those elections is, is is real. Yeah, and actually the U.S. intelligence community came out recently, if I'm not mistaken, with a report saying that Russia is kind of shifting its focus in this regard to discredit elections per mm-hmm. se. Um, less about supporting one or the other, but discrediting the idea of elections. Yeah. Um, just no doubt about elections to further destabilize uh, Western polities. So I, I, we've seen how destabilizing that can be in the United States. Yes, yes. And and I think the Russians have uh, have learned from that. Well, this, uh, we, we, this is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure we, 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 we have a full strategy, but there's certainly an, an incipient strategy is what we're seeing, uh, an incipient coherent strategy. That's a, a good place to shift gears in a few moments We will continue our discussion and look at how 20 months of war has scrambled the geopolitics of some key strategic regions. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power of the Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McFowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Ryan Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. 
Joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Menkoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and please do. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. So in the second half of the program, I wanted to look at something you and I have discussed a bit both on and off mic, Jeff. How the war has scrambled the politics of two key regions, the South Caucasus and the Black Sea region. Um, let's start with the South Caucasus. Uh, Azerbaijan's successful offensive in the, to take uh, Nagorno-Karabakh last month was notable for what did not happen. Uh, Russia did not assist Armenia. Uh, Russia's influence in Georgia uh, has been steadily expanding due to a bad case of state capture facilitated by the pro-Moscow oligarch Benzina Ivanishvili. And Azerbaijan, as ever, is playing its own game with quite a bit of an assist from Turkey. Uh, are the, are the, do you see the South Caucasus in flux? And if so, how? Yeah, uh, it, it definitely seems in flux. Um, the Azerbaijani victory uh, over Armenia, uh, I think it's starting in 2020, but the, the taking of, of Nagorno-Karabakh just recently as a continuation, I think really started that, that scrambling. Um, but it's also been assisted by Russia's distraction involvement uh in the war in ukraine uh where russia i think is less able now to play the role of regional hegemon or policeman um that it had uh been accustomed to playing since the end of, of the cold war and that was really the um the background condition that, that allowed azerbaijan to uh to go ahead with its amendment to retake uh karabakh um even you know, back in 2020, when Azerbaijan, um, uh, when when the second Nagorno-Karabakh War broke out, and Azerbaijan took back a lot of the territory that, that Armenia had seized in the early 1990s, Russia may have lost the war, but it kind of won the peace uh, because it was the one that was instrumental in uh, imposing a peace deal between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and it deployed its own peacekeepers. Uh, along the, the so-called Lushan Corridor to uh, enforce that deal, which was something that prior to November 2020, both Armenia and Azerbaijan had opposed. Um, and, you know, Turkey, which had been the big backer for Azerbaijan in 2020, got kind of relegated to a, a sort of symbolic uh, presence in the post-conflict uh, settlement. So Russia came out of the 2020 war looking pretty good. Um but as it's gotten pulled, you know, more and more into the fighting Ukraine, I think there's a growing recognition in the South Caucasus, among other places. I think you're seeing this in Central Asia too, albeit in different ways. That you know, Russia's not 
it's not the same Russia that they'd been accustomed to dealing with for the last 30 years. And I think the Azerbaijanis in particular took that Russian distraction as a signal that they had more freedom of action, especially because of the support that they were continuing to get from Turkey. Um, and so when Azerbaijan uh, blockaded the Lachin Corridor, uh, the Russian peacekeepers should have been the ones to uh, prevent the blockade or to ensure that assistance was getting through to the ethnic Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh. They, they couldn't do it. They, they weren't in a position to, to sort of risk the, the consequences of, of a clash uh, that would involve potentially not only the Azerbaijanis, but also the Turks. Um, and as, as time went on, I think it became clearer and clearer in Baku um, that Russia was not going to do anything uh, if they continued pushing. And so they continued pushing, and, and we saw what happened, uh, where uh, in a lightning offensive, Azerbaijani forces went in and, and took Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, while the Russians basically stood aside and, and allowed it to happen. And I think, you know, we saw some justifications from Moscow about, you know, how Armenia had, had recognized Azerbaijan's territorial integrity, and therefore there was nothing Russia could do. Uh, that kind of strikes me as as a distraction. Um, I think the real issue is that the, the Russians just, just weren't in a position to do anything, and, the, and that the, the check that they wrote Armenia uh, as a member of the, the CSTO to, to protect their security, they couldn't cash. They, they had insufficient to cash it. And, and the Azerbaijanis and the Turks recognize that. I'll, I'll, there's also a school of thought out there that, that Putin doesn't like Nikol Pashinyan, the Armenian leader. And and he was, this was uh, was him basically uh, uh, showing him the finger, basically. Uh, in a way, do you think there's any currency to that? That's probably some of the context to it, yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, Armenia is not just Pashinyan. Um, and you know, I think also because Russian security guarantees, such as they were, operated through the CSTO, you know, this sends a message to the other members of the CSTO as well. Right. You know, okay, Belarus, but, you know, Kazakhstan, um, you know, I, I, I think the, the you know, the, the idea of relying on Tajikistan, I think the idea of, you know, relying on Russian guarantees is a lot more questionable now. I think it was always kind of a little bit mm -hmm. questionable, um, but you know now, even more so than it was uh, before. I, I wanted to pick up on something you said about that Russia is no longer able to play the role of regional hegemon in the South Caucasus like it was in the post Cold War period. Who fills that vacuum now? Is it is it Turkey? Is there an opening for the West? Yeah. So Turkey's clearly become a bigger player in the region, um, largely through its, its partnership with Azerbaijan. Um, you know, I think Turkey is also trying to, it, it, Turkey's playing a complicated role here because I think on the one hand, Ankara is interested in normalization with Armenia, uh, the opening of the border, which would allow, you know, greater connectivity um, between the Caspian and the other region we're talking about, the Black Sea. Um, it's constrained a little bit by its alliance with Azerbaijan, uh, and there's still concern that Azerbaijan's um, uh, territorial aspirations vis-a-vis -vis Armenia have not been fully satiated. Um, mm -hmm. And Turkey kind of seems to be, um, it, it seems to be very cautious, I think is, is 
you know, even though Turkey is a much bigger country, uh, I think Azerbaijan has a lot of leverage in um, mm-hmm. it's uh, all because of its investments in the Turkish economy and because of, um, you know, its, its provision of energy. Um, and so, and so Turkey is being very careful on this. Um, but, you know, I think the Turks would be among the biggest beneficiaries of um, normalization, which would also be good for Armenia, be good for Azerbaijan. It might not be so good for Georgia, um, but it would, uh, you know, really insert Turkey into the region as a, as a key player. They're already there as a key player, but because they don't have normal relations with Armenia, I think the role they can play is, is somewhat limited. It's limited, yeah. Um, you mentioned, but, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was going to say, but, you know, I, I think they're trying. And I think that if, you know, there is uh, progress on that on that normalization track, we could see a much bigger uh, Turkish role in the region. Um, the EU, um, you know, certainly, although the um, EU um, accession process for Georgia has kind of right. uh, run into a holding pattern for, for reasons that you were describing, Um I think Armenia is is really trying to uh, strengthen its links with with not just the EU but with the United States as well. This includes, you know, calling for Russian forces to leave, uh, which I don't think Armenia has the, the the leverage to to enforce. But I think clearly they're trying to align themselves much more closely with with the EU and, and the United States. Um, we forget about Iran sometimes, but Iran is is right there as well. Um, and, you know, I think if Azerbaijan does pursue its uh, territorial ambitions towards uh, Armenia, that's going to uh, go over very badly in Tehran. And I think you could see uh, more direct Iranian involvement in the region, too. Uh, so the, the South Caucasus is, as it has historically been, uh, kind of a fracture zone. And, and it's a very volatile place. And the inter- I mean, you mentioned a holding pattern. The one that's caught in a holding pattern, both before and after the invasion of Ukraine, is Georgia. Really, it's like it's remarkable how how much of a holding pattern it's caught in due to that state capture. And I don't see that logjam breaking. And that's a good way to segue into the the, the Black Sea, uh, moving to the strategic Black Sea region. Prior to the war, Russia seemed to be playing a bad hand very well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, this is because if you look at that map. With NATO members, Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, NATO partners, Ukraine, and Georgia, the Black Sea looks like a NATO lake. Uh, but then you look a little closer. Turkey and Bulgaria are, let's, let's just say, less than reliable allies. Uh, Russia's placing major naval assets in the annexed Crimean Peninsula and in Georgia's occupied Abkhazia region. And then if you look at it that way, it looks kind of like a Russian lake. How has the war shifted the balance in the Black Sea? Because it's, it's, And it's, this seems to be a key area where that the war is going to shift the balance in. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, U- Ukraine basically lost its Navy um, in 2014, which sort of took, mm-hmm. you know, Ukraine off the, the, the battlefield or the, the battle sea, if that's a term. <laughs> um, so and then, you know, so I, I think Russia's um, naval presence in the Black Sea is increased substantially after 2014. And not only that, but Russia, once it took over Crimea, you know, devoted a lot of money to building up um, not just its naval capacity, but its um, uh, you know sea uh, sea control capacity. So anti-ship, uh, air defense, uh, just general kind of militarization um, of the Black Sea. A two A D. Yeah. Um, so that you know perception that that 
um, it was becoming a, a Russian lake was growing. In fact, uh, President Erdogan uh, used that term uh, in, I think, 2016. He said the Black Sea has, since the annexation of Crimea, become uh, a Russian lake. On top of that, you know, if we look at Russian war aims uh, since February 22nd, uh, or sorry, February 24th, 2022, um, they focused on, you know, controlling the northern Black Sea littoral. Um, the areas that the Russian military has, has focused on taking um, already, they essentially control the entire coast of the Sea of Azov uh, in the east, plus uh, Crimea. Uh, and they made uh, attempts at Odessa uh, on the west side of, of Crimea early in the war. And I think given the opportunity, would, would try and take Odessa again. Um, so Russia's ambition uh, clearly is to completely dominate the littoral of the Black Sea, apart from, you know, the the NATO parts in Romania, Bulgaria, uh, and Turkey. Um, and they've made some progress in that direction. I think, uh, you know, Ukraine has had some success in um, uh, pushing the Russian fleet back. Uh, we all remember the sinking of the Moskva and uh, the growing uh, Ukrainian strikes on Crimea uh, that have pushed a lot of the Russian fleet further uh, into the east and, and restricted its ability to operate. Um, the um, after the Russians pulled out of the grain agreement that they had uh, signed with the UN and, and Turkey last year, um, you know, Ukraine started operating its own uh, kind of grain corridor along the the coast. Uh, you know, now it looks like Russia has uh, attempted to sever that through the use of mines. So even if they can't get uh, ships into the region, they can they can disrupt traffic through uh, the laying of mines, and and so far we don't have a, a good answer to that. Um, the other side of it, though, is that um, you know you, you you talked about Turkey, but Turkey is really kind of the the keystone here when it comes to to the Black Sea because under the the Montreux Convention um, that was signed in the 1930s, Turkey controls egress to the Black Sea through the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the war, uh, the, the, the Montreux Convention has, is kind of complicated. It, it has a lot of different provisions. But at the beginning of the war, uh, Turkey invoked the convention, um, calling it a war, um, which allowed it to uh, limit the passage of warships through the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. So Turkey is not allowing uh, warships that are not uh, home ported in the Black Sea to go into the Black Sea or to transit in the other direction either. Um, so as Russia has lost uh, shipping capacity in the Black Sea to Ukraine's uh, coastal defense, uh, it hasn't been able to replenish them by bringing in ships elsewhere. So you're seeing this kind of attrition. Um, so, you know, the Russians now are trying to husband the resources that they've got. They've talked about building up a naval base in Ochimchire, which is the the port in the occupied uh, Georgian region of, of South Ossetia, or, I'm sorry, of Abkhazia, um, which would you know be sort of out of range of Ukrainian coastal defense capabilities. Um, and if they can build up uh, a fleet inside the Black Sea, that's one thing, but they can't move ships into the Black Sea from elsewhere. So I think it's kind of a, it, it, it's a dynamic situation. Uh, Russia has definitely lost uh, capabilities to, to Ukrainian strikes, and the more strikes we see on Crimea, the further their losses are, are going to be. Um, but at the same time, they've shown that they have the, cap the capacity using naval assets, you know, planes dropping mines or whatever else it is to continue disrupting shipping, which is having a huge impact on the Ukrainian economy. 
um, and is putting a lot of pressure uh, on Ukraine if it can't export uh, grain and, and other commodities. So in that sense, I think Russia is still, uh, you know, had a, a fair bit of success strategically in the Black Sea, despite a lot of uh, tactical defeats. And you have to wonder, we did a podcast a few weeks back looking at Crimea with Casey Michelle and uh, the, the arguments that, that Crimea is very much in play, uh, contrary to popular wisdom. And if Ukraine were able to to liberate Crimea, that would be a game changer in, in, in the Black Sea. It would, it would basically erase most of Russia's gains there. If you had to venture, we're bumping up against the end here, so it's going to kind of want to wrap it up, but if... If you had to venture to guess going forward, judging from what we know now, like when this is all said and done, uh, does, does, the, does the Black Sea remain contested or does it lean more toward being a NATO or Russian lake? I imagine it's going to continue to be contested. Uh, one, because I don't think the war is going to end soon. Um, but even if the war does end soon, I don't think Russia or the Russian Black Sea fleet is going to go away. Um, you know, okay, Ukraine retaking Crimea, I think would be a, a big victory and, and would tilt the balance, you know, rather substantially. Uh, but Ukraine still doesn't have much of a Navy. They actually they signed a deal with Turkey actually to, um, you know, build, uh, capabilities, but they're not, they're not there yet. It's going to take a long time. Um, and, you know, I think Russia's going to, especially if the war ends, uh, I think Russia is going to be, you know, pretty actively trying to reconstitute its fleet as well. And of course, if the war ends, Turkey's not going to be invoking Montreux anymore and Russia can ships in from. Right. All right. Well, we have covered a whole hell of a lot of ground today, Jeff. Anything you want to add before I wrap it up? We're, we're at a very dynamic moment. Uh, I think the, the outbreak of, of a war that we still don't quite know the contours of in the Middle East is is a big uh, development. And I think we need to think about it, not only in terms of, of the Middle East, but also what it means for the war in Ukraine and, and the broader relationship between the West and Russia. Because as we were talking about at the beginning, you know, there are these linkages and the emergence of these axes or blocks, you know, makes what happens in one theater really resonant uh, right. elsewhere. That, of course, was the case in the years leading up to 1914. And, well, we all know how that one ended. We all know how that ended. No, we are certainly in that kind of an inflection point at the moment. Um, we live in interesting times, as the Chinese might say. And on that note, I'll wrap it up. It was a curse. You know, it was a curse, yeah. <laughs> so, and we seem to be living through those kinds of interesting times. On that note, we will wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCLA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been the one and only Jeff Mankoff a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shaped International Security. I shall also add once again that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Jeff, thanks for taking some of your Friday to give us an enlightening discussion and making us all a lot smarter. Thanks. No, this was fun. 
This was fun. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas, where the Texas Rangers will be playing in the World Series this coming week. Um, Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in working water throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform that was once known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. 